0: Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. Today we are finishing our uh, study of the church's doctrinal statement. Uh, we will start a series on First and 2 Peter. I don't know whether we'll start it in two weeks or in January. I haven't figured that part out yet. But that's where we're going next. Um We've spent the last uh, 12 lessons working through our church's doctrinal statement. And so today is going to be a little bit of wrapping up and a little bit of discussing one of those three things that I say I never teach about. We're going to talk about marriage. But before we begin, let's talk about the Council of Nicaea. In 325 AD, Emperor Constantine called the church together and said, we've got a problem, y'all have got to figure it out. And the problem revolved around who was Jesus, and what was his relationship to God the Father. In particular, it was this argument between Athanasius and Arius regarding whether Jesus was a created thing, or whether he had been present at the beginning with God, etc., 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 And they hashed all of this out, and out of this came the Nicene Creed, which discusses who Jesus is. Why is this important to today's lesson? Well, the church, at different times in its history—this is capital C Church, the um, church—has had to deal with different doctrinal issues. And as these things have arisen, the church has come together to determine what does it mean about this. We, as a local congregation, have a doctrinal statement. And if you remember in our very first lesson, I commented that there are those who think, why do you have a doctrinal statement? Why don't you just believe the Bible? Well, we do just believe the Bible. But we also recognize that at different times, we've had to explain what we, how we understand the Bible when it deals with different topics. For example, at Nicaea, they discussed what does the Bible teach about Jesus? What does it mean that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, that he is the second person of the Trinity? So the church, at different times, has had to deal with different issues. And we learn from that, and we put our understanding into, in our case, our doctrinal statement. We did it with Jesus. We did it during the Reformation with our understanding of what salvation is. There are some who believe that in the 1718, uh, early 1900s, we did it again with the discussion about the second coming, and what that meant. In our generation right now, like today, the discussion that the church is having is about the two topics we're gonna deal with today, marriage and sexuality. And to be quite honest, from a society standpoint, we have lost this argument. We just have. But what that means is that we as a church, capital C, church, need to clarify our understanding about what the Bible teaches about marriage and human sexuality. Because if the church can't give a clear understanding, there is no way the world is going to understand what God means by marriage. A couple of weeks ago, like three weeks ago, a Catholic priest, he was actually a retired Catholic priest, but he was filling in in a church in Ireland for the day, and he gets up and he mentions the fact that God is against abortion, same-sex marriage, and transgenderism. And as you might imagine, the internet went berserk. How could you possibly say that? To the point that his bishop apologized and said, what this priest said is not the church's position. Well, I'm not a Catholic, but it actually is the Catholic's position. It is also the Bible's position, but that's why we have to clarify it. So several years ago, I don't know the exact number, 10, just to pick a number, our church added two paragraphs to our church's doctrinal statement, one on marriage and one on human sexuality. And that's what we're going to talk about today. If you thought the Second Coming was controversial, if you thought the Doctrine of Salvation was controversial, I would rather stand up here and teach about predestination. (laughs) Just saying. But it is important that we clarify what we mean when we see the word marriage. If you had told me 40 years ago that we would have to clarify what the Bible taught about marriage, I would just think that was the stupidest thing ever. Why would we have to do that? Isn't it pretty clear? Well, today, it's not that clear. So, that's what we're going to talk about. But before we do that, let's remind ourselves. Section 1, part 1 of the doctrinal statement says, We believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, by which we understand the whole Bible is inspired in the sense that holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit to write the very words of Scripture. That is the first paragraph of our doctrinal statement. Why is that important? Because everything we're going to say today about marriage and sexuality, we believe is comes right out of the Bible. The question that we have to address is, are we going to believe what God says Or are we going to believe something else? There are those today who believe the Bible allows, encourages, whatever word you want to use, same-sex marriage. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So, number two, section four of the doctoral statement. We believe that man was originally created in the image and after the likeness of God. Why is this important? We are created beings. We are created by God. God, being the creator, has the wisdom to tell us how we ought to live our lives. He has the right to tell us how we ought to live our lives. And he is the judge of how we ought to live our lives. You see, what we're going to talk about with regard to marriage and human sexuality boils down to this. Is there a truth that is out there that we are under? And we spend our lives trying to understand what that truth means and how it applies to our individual lives or is truth something that I just bring up out of myself and if I choose something to be true, then by definition it's true. What we believe is that God is the arbiter of truth. And God has prescribed certain ways that we ought to live that are good for our human flourishing. And that's what we're going to talk about. So, marriage. This is back to the doctrinal statement. We believe the testimony of the God-breathed Holy Scripture is that, marriage, that the marriage covenant shall be reserved for only one God-made man— With one God made woman. The fact that we would even have to word it this way is strange to those, well, to most of us. So, what does it mean? We believe that we made an image of God, that we In order to have a true marriage, we have one male, one female in a covenant relationship. And we believe this was instituted by God, more about that in just a moment, not by human society. The the God-made man and the God-made woman was added because we have great confusion about the use of the word male and female today. The Bible is not confused about the usage of the word male and female. It uses them as a biological reality. We today have decided that these are simply human constructs. And if you choose to be something else, you are free to do so. Now, I'm going to stop and give you the conclusion of all this lesson, just so you know. The very last chart I'm going to give you is, so what do we do about this? We are all aware of people who are either involved in what we kindly call alternative lifestyles, or are somehow Um, encouraged in this direction, or something like that? How are we to respond? The number one thing we need to do as a church is to clearly state what the Bible, what God teaches about marriage and human sexuality. But we also need to recognize that people who are falling into these other alternative lifestyles are victims of really bad ideas. And we need to love them. We need to tend to them. We need to help them. And I will tell you right off the bat, whacking them over the head with a two-by-four is probably not going to help them. It's just not going to do that. We also know... That when it comes to marriage, there are lots of people, lots of us, who sometimes fall short in a representation of Christian marriage. We have lots of divorce. We have lots of lots of things. And we need to understand that God gives grace to those who fall short because we all do. We all do in one way or another. So, as I tell my worldview class repeat classes repeatedly, nothing in this is a club to beat people over the head with. What it is is an encouragement for us to teach and demonstrate God's plan for proper human flourishing. And that is a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Let's continue. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 24, with a few of those verses taken out there in the middle so it would fit on the chart. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. But for Adam, remember this is the discussion in between about naming the animals, etc., etc. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to man. Then the man said, This is At last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Before any human law was ever created on this planet, before any command was ever given, On this planet, God initiated marriage between one man and one woman. And God didn't make a mistake. Why did he do this? Because he knew that man needed help. Mankind had been given a task. Subdue the earth, multiply, tend the garden. And guess what? Man cannot do that by himself. None of us can do that by ourselves. We needed help. He needed a partner. And God said, I have a solution to that, and it's called marriage. So God created man in his own image, backing up to chapter 1 of Genesis, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I'm not even going to talk about it. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven." and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He created them male and female, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, at the risk of being so trivial that you'll just collapse with laughter, which you're not going to do, because it's too serious. In order to be fruitful and multiply you need one biological male and one biological female. If you are two biological males, you cannot be fruitful. If you're going to have a child, you have to get the child from someplace else. If you are two biological females, you cannot be fruitful. If you're going to have a child, you've got to get that child from someplace else. Is this pretty simple? The command to the husband and the wife were to be fruitful and multiply. Now, just in case you think, well, that's just Old Testament stuff, let's jump to the words of Jesus himself. Because all he's going to do is repeat what we just read in the book of Genesis. He's been questioned about divorce. What is it that constitutes a valid divorce? He answered, "'Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning "'made them male and female, and said, "'Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother "'and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? "'So they are no longer two but one flesh,' What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The Pharisees wanted a debate about divorce. There were two wide camps. One says, eh, very limited. The other said, anything that makes you unhappy with your spouse, just get rid of them. And they come to Jesus and say, which is it going to be? Jesus goes back before the word divorce has ever been mentioned in the Bible and says, let's go back to the beginning. What was God's plan from the beginning? From the beginning, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. To me, it's interesting When we do marriage mentoring, I always ask them, what does this phrase, one flesh, mean? And they all come up with very spiritual answers. I mean, they're great spiritual answers. You know what the one flesh is? They have sex. But it isn't just a biological connection It is a covenant connection where the two become one in flesh and in spirit. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is the next section of the doctrinal statement. We believe it was our creator, the Lord God. Stop right there. I'm going to say it again, and I'll say it again in a moment. Marriage is not a human construct. It is a God-given construct that we are to adhere to. Now, Kyle, you're confused. Obviously, throughout history, there have been lots of different ways of doing marriage. Well, actually, there haven't been that many. The one that is most common is polygamy. One man, multiple wives. And we see this throughout the scripture, where different people, the patriarchs of our faith, practice polygamy. Well, see, there is an alternative lifestyle. Well, what the scripture teaches us is that God allowed that, but God never endorsed that. That was never the plan from the beginning. And in fact, if you read every example of it in the scripture, it never turned out well. It would have always been better to have one man and one woman. Historically speaking, polygamy has been practiced by, well, throughout history, rich and powerful men have demonstrated that they are rich and powerful by taking more than one wife. Once again, we have seen this throughout our discussion of the doctoral statement. Do you remember the fact that we are sinners? Sinners? and left to our own devices, we're going to sin, and that sin is going to affect every institution in our societies, including marriage. That does not endorse it. That simply is an acknowledgment that we are sinners. Now, in society, rich and powerful men have demonstrated that they are rich and powerful by taking more wives. All you have to do is do the math to figure out that polygamy would never work on a society-wide basis. I mean, let's just do the math. Every man in the United States decides he's going to have four wives. Mathematically speaking, that means 75% of the men are not going to have a wife. Why? because all the females are gone. Now, there have been times in history that due to wars, diseases, something else, this ratio of males to females have changed, and there were an excess of females, and yes, there were multiple wives because the wives needed a husband to take care of them. That has never been the plan. Historically speaking, there is a finite number, like one, plan for marriage. Always has been, always should be. Now, just to remind ourselves, people have always sinned. Do we want to have a debate about that? People have always had sex outside of marriage. People have always violated the word of God with regard to marriage. And that shouldn't shock us. But that doesn't make it right. The problem we have today is not only do I want to practice immorality, I want society to say that it's okay. Not just turn a blind eye to it, but actually say that it's okay. And you know what? Our society has decided that it's okay. But you know what? God hasn't changed his mind. So, we begin with the phrase, God, our creator, did all the following. It was God who decided that man should not be alone. We are social creatures. I know some of us like hiding away from the crowd. Okay? I am, as I have told you, and you don't believe it, I am an introvert. Okay? It's Thanksgiving Day. We're between the lunch with 35 people and the dinner with only... 14, and you know what? I go hide in my room for five minutes. Okay, why? I've just got to... But it is not good that we are alone. Anybody want to argue that? We are social creatures. It was God who specifically fashioned the woman as a suitable helper for the man. We're not going to talk about biology today, but I'm going to do it just a smidgen. There are girl parts, and there are boy parts, and God created the girl parts to interact with the boy parts, and it works. The boy parts don't interact with boy parts, and the girl parts don't interact with girl parts. It just doesn't happen. We were created for each other. It was God who literally made the woman from a part of man and the woman from the man complete. It was God who decided sexual union to be with a husband, cleaving to his wife as one flesh. It was God who bestowed his divine blessing upon the unity of a God-made man and a God-made woman. It was God who gave the man and woman the ability to fulfill his charge to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And it was God who ordained the pattern for human existence that a God-made man and a God-made woman would pair up and cleave to each other in one flesh. It was God. It was not the United States of America. It was not the state of Texas. It was not some international organization. It was God who decided. Now, Has God changed his mind? To the best of my understanding, no. Now, if that wasn't controversial enough, the next paragraph of the doctoral statement, we believe that God values man and woman man and woman, as equals in his kingdom, yet in the holy unity of marriage, the husband and the wife each have distinct God-ordained roles and responsibilities. We believe no other relationship can ever be the holy unity between one God-made man and one God-made woman established by our Creator, which the Apostle Paul frequently compared to the holy unity of Christ and the church, and man has no authority to alter the divine order of the unity between one God-made man and one God-made woman. Years ago, I taught a series of lessons on Bible verses that embarrass us. And I believe the first lesson was on this verse from Ephesians. You can actually Go online and find articles that will talk about cults. And a cult is an organization that believes that wives should submit to their husbands. That is the sign of a cult. But wait a minute. The scripture says, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, I'm not going to reteach that lesson. But let me clarify a few things at the very beginning. Nowhere does this passage say women submit to men. At different times, we the church, we societies, have somehow taken this passage to mean that women are somehow subservient to men. It does not teach this. This is one woman and one man in a covenant relationship and each has its divine, Each party have their divine role. It has nothing to do with women submitting to men. If you ever hear somebody say, you're a woman you're supposed to submit to me, just punch him in the face <laughs> and say, God bless you and walk away. Because that is not what this passage says. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And the final sentence is: this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Just stop for a moment and think about that. We can talk about the purpose of marriage. Companionship? Yes. The raising of children? Yes. But for some reason, God has ordained that the relationship with a husband and a wife is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. And guess what? Christ is Christ and the church is church, and you don't have two Christ and you don't have two church. You have a man and you have a woman, and that's the picture of Christ's relationship to the church. So, why is it important that we demonstrate marriage to the world around us? Because it is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. And if that wasn't bad enough, the final section of the doctrinal statement, we believe sexuality and the divinely prescribed boundaries for the expression thereof is covered clearly in the Holy Scriptures, which limit sexual expression to the marital relationship of one God-made man with one God-made woman, We believe homosexual acts, adultery, bestiality, and all forms of fornication are categorically condemned in the Holy Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 6.18, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, In order for there to be a command to flee from sexual immorality, there has to be something that is sexual immorality. There has to be something that is off limits. It is interesting to me that word immorality, obviously morality, when I was younger, I remember having discussions within the church because there were those who believed that every discussion about morality was just about sex. And people wanted to emphasize morality covers a lot of other things. And you know what? That's very true. Today we have decided that morality has nothing to do with sex. There's no such thing as immoral sex. The only criteria we accept today is the criteria of consent. What two consenting adults do is nobody else's business. The only criteria we still allow to separate immoral from moral activity is consent. Years ago, I read an interview with an actress... Uh, Time magazine on the back page used to have 10 questions or whatever. And they were interviewing this actress and they said, what do you think about pornography? And she said, well, it's okay as long as it's consensual. And I go, what does that mean? Who's consenting? I'll assume that the people producing it are doing it of their own free will. That's not always the case, but let's assume that. But the family of the person viewing it, are they consenting to it? Is the future spouse of the person viewing it consenting to it? No. It's a meaningless but. That has to be, in our modern era, the only criteria that separates immoral from moral sexual activity. Well, biblically we know that what separates moral from immoral is the word of God. But the second part of this verse I want you to think about. Sometimes we think, well, sin, uh, sex is just like other sins. Well, in one sense it is. But in another sense it's not. The scripture actually says there's something different about it. Because it is a sin against your own body. Let's keep going. Romans chapter one. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. error. If you remember... In this passage in Romans chapter 1, we're looking at the fact that humankind has rejected the creator and has decided to worship the created rather than the creator. And it says God continues to give them over. It's like God saying, you want to sin? Go ahead. Go do it. But it's this downward spiral. And in that spiral is... This discussion right here. Now, at this point, we have to have a discussion about homosexuality. There are those today who, by their statements, are homosexual Christians, not celibate homosexual Christians, but practicing homosexual Christians. And in order to do that, they have to take the scripture and do some strange things with it. And what they do to this verse here is they say that what is talked about with men consumed for their passions for one another is something different than what is practiced today as homosexuality. You go back to the Greeks, which would have been part of this world. And in the Greek world, you had homosexual activities that were usually conducted between an older adult male, usually a man of some power and influence, and a young boy. And there was this power differential between the adult male and the young boy. Modern homosexuals will tell you that that is immoral. But this has nothing to do with a loving relationship, here it is again, between two consenting adult males. That the Bible says nothing about that. Well, that whole construction is a modern understanding of homosexuality. homosexuality up till, I don't know, a hundred years ago was just assumed to be any relationship between two males or two females. It had nothing to do with power. It had nothing to do with differentials in power. That is a postmodern critical gender theory that we have created to explain something that doesn't need to be explained. The scripture says it's wrong. What's interesting also about this passage, though, (coughs) is that it hints at the idea that homosexuality is both a sin and the consequence of a sin. As we begin down this path of rejecting the creator and worshiping the created stuff, We move down the path of sin to ever-increasing sins. (sighs) Conclusions of all of this. Marriage is the God-created covenant between one God-man and one God-made woman. It's just awkward that we actually have to throw in this phrase, God-made man and God-made woman. I actually read a letter to the editor this week in my most liberal magazine that I get. And the guy or gal writing the article really liked this, the letter, really liked this article, but he took exception to the lady writing it because she would not use the word woman. She, I'm not even sure I can pronounce the word. They were Pregnant people. And they said, I liked your article, but can't we just use the word woman? And the author responded, Well, if you want to write to a transphobic audience, that's fine with you, but I refuse to do it. It's weird. God created sexuality to be expressed between one God-made man and one God-made woman within the context of the marriage covenant. Both of these statements have been rejected by our secular society. To believe them today is to be called bigoted. It just is. Our modern society wants to equate being against same-sex marriage as being the same as being racist and any other horrible negative word. Many religious groups are moving toward rejecting these statements. You can look at every denomination in the world today, and this struggle is going on within that group. Some groups are holding out better than others, But the pressure is there. So, what in the world do we do about this? We, 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 the church, need to teach the church what marriage and human sexuality are. Just for one moment, forget the world out there. Forget the world out there. We, as a Christian community, have not done a decent job of explaining to the world that Christian marriage and Christian Christian view of sexuality is not only just a different viewpoint, but is, in fact, that which is best for human flourishing. It always has been, and it always will be. Believe that God created marriage, there it is, and human sexuality for human flourishing. We have to believe that. Now, we have to back up and look at the other argument. Okay, I'm going to marry a woman. Why should I care if somebody else marries, well, whatever they want to marry? I mean, you know, right, that it's not just male and male and female and female, they're coming up with all kinds of strange connections today. Okay? When the state of Utah, uh, well, when the territory of Utah wanted to become a state, the United States required them to repudiate polygamy. The Mormons practiced polygamy, and, and most of the Mormons did. For the life of me, I don't see how we could outlaw polygamy today. I mean, if marriage is a human construct, why not? Open it up to anything you want. So if I want to marry a woman, that's cool. But if somebody else wants to marry, why should I care? Well, the reason I should care is because I don't think it's good for their flourishing— it's certainly not good for the children of those couples flourishing. And we need to demonstrate that marriage is good. And we need to be ready to deal with the victims of these false ideas. They're going to be victims. Young people today are struggling. Young people today are being bombarded with these ideas as if they're just the norm. You read stories of, you know, a middle school teacher and all of her kids say they're bisexual. And these are, it's not like they're practicing sex, they just know they're supposed to be something. These are bad ideas. And bad ideas have bad consequences. And bad consequences produce victims, and we need to be ready to love them and bring them back. We need to tell people that there is a loving God who wants what is best for you, and the path you're going down now is not what is best for you. But God loves you. And we need to be ready to be persecuted because of these ideas. It's just going to happen. In my readings this week, I jumped very briefly to a uh, website run by a very Catholic woman supporting marriage. And just out of curiosity, I googled on the organization. And the Southern Poverty Law Center... classifies it as a hate group. Why? Because they don't support LGBT marriage. They just don't. And that makes them a a hate group. Guess what? You and I are a hate group. Now, several years ago, I'm not making this up, I actually went and got a dictionary, a physical dictionary, and lurked up the word hate. Because I'm going, these people are using this word. Maybe there's a definition I don't understand. No, I understand. We do not hate these people. If you do, then you've got another problem. We do not hate these people. We hate what the bad ideas are doing to their lives. So... We added these two paragraphs to our doctrinal statement because we felt it was imperative that we as a local church congregation tell the world this is what we mean by marriage and this is what we mean by human sexuality, that God has ordained sex. And sex, if you don't remember this or think about this, is a great thing within the context of marriage. The illustration that people use is that sex is a fire, and you put it in the fireplace, and it's wonderful. You take it out of the fireplace, it burns the house down. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have instructed us on how we ought to live our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom to share this with others, and that you would give us the courage to stand up for your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.